0: and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lip. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people.
2: So this is why Elizabeth Warren shouldn't be president. Number one. Um, and the primary reason over anything else when you say that Daenerys should be Leader at the end of Game of Thrones you just don't deserve to be president at that point you have poor judgment and you're just not very good at, <laughs> at looking ahead and strategizing and figuring out plot lines Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones. Ah, us everything. Things <laughs> started with that. Hi guys. Welcome back uh, Barstool Politics. I am your host, Nick McGuire, joined as always by Dr. Bell from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. And to help us with our Game of Thrones, as well as our Supreme Court and legal matters, we have senior legal analyst Tom Cavanaugh with us. Hi, Tom. Always great to be here. Thanks hey, for having me. Absolutely. Uh, before we get started, if you guys have uh, uh, questions, comments, beer suggestions, uh, guest suggestions, uh, things you want us to talk about, Uh, Follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Uh, Beers that we try you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Just look for Barstool Politics on there. Uh, The podcast, Spotify, uh, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Uh, And then... For new or returning listeners, uh, we are partnered with uh, Predicted, which is a, a real money political prediction market, pretty much a stock market for politics where you can buy and sell shares in future political events. Uh, we're definitely using it for uh, Democratic presidential uh, contenders, candidates, uh, and seeing how that is changing as time goes on, who's in favor, who's out of favor, where people are putting their money. Uh, and lots of other things, lots of other markets to look at on their platform. It's a lot of fun and really informative and a different kind of take on all these things that you don't get, um, you know, other places. So check that out. What's great for you guys, uh, Barstool Politics listeners who uh, use our promo link when opening up a new account will receive up to a $20 match on your first deposit. Uh, So, for example, if you open up a $20 account, predict it will match that $20, giving you $40 to use. Uh, like I said, just use the promo link, predicted.org, slash promo, slash barstoolpaul20, uh, and check it out. It's really... Well, intro. Thanks, kinda, man. That was like your best one it's ever. It's hot as shit in here, and I'm <laughs> yes. trying to not talk, and I'm heating up, and it's... Wow. <laughs> Summer has finally arrived. I made it a minute and a half without swearing. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's... Uh, you- Boys,
1: watch for a grand libertarian theme in all of the topics this morning, and it is that everything government does is bad.
2: Yes, I'll I agree just, I'm going to get that out there yeah. up front, <laughs> so that up. as we talk through
1: all of the horrors of government today in each of these, including Game of Thrones, too much government doing too many things, and they're almost always bad.
2: Uh, I it's a good refrain. couldn't possibly come up with a better intro than that, so let's just dive into the first topic there, shall we? <laughs> All right, so we're going to look at the the battle between Congress and the president. So in
3: the face of more than 20 separate investigations, the Trump administration has gone all in on a strategy of non-cooperation with Congress. In the process, the president is calling into question Congress's authority to conduct oversight of the executive branch. By some accounts, the Trump administration has failed to respond to or comply with at least 79 requests for documents. Trump recently uh, told reporters, quote, we're fighting all the subpoenas. These aren't like impartial people. Uh, And in a step never taken before by a modern president, Trump declared that he would bar former White House counsel Don McGahn and all other current and former administration officials from testifying before Congress. Trump's decision to invoke executive privilege over the full Mueller report brings back memories of Watergate and President Richard Nixon's claim of executive privilege. These developments raise important questions of what is legitimate uh, legislative oversight and whether Trump's actions threaten to undermine the institutional power of Congress. Trump's legal strategy has caused Democrats to inch closer to impeachment, something the president himself may in fact welcome. Tom, I'm sure you've pulled out your pocket constitution a time or two recently uh, thinking about all this. There's so many interesting constitutional questions and aspects to this. Uh, What's your your overall sense of the situation?
1: My friend, a day that goes by that you don't pull out your pocket (laughs) constitution is a day you've wasted. (laughs) I have to say that this frenzy of investigation in Washington reminds me of the arms race Mm. in the 80s. It's tit for tat, escalate at every step, and it's uh, uh, even more dangerous in some ways because we don't have mutual assured uh, destruction uh, to protect us from these people, all of them. It feels like all villains and no heroes in in Washington today. Um, Let's start by saying I think this is uncharted territory. There's some case law that gives us some guidance, but uh, a a fair bit of what's happening uh, in this range of investigations, and it's becoming harder and harder to keep track of all of them and who's uh, managing them, Uh, is pushing us into territory we've not been in yet. Maybe we could stipulate uh, to at least one thing. Congress has oversight responsibility. And second, it has power to go with it, which isn't unlimited. And it's that latter part that I think raises the really interesting constitutional questions here. In a co-equal set of branches of government, just how much power should Congress have to ruin a presidency? Forget what party, forget who it is because in some ways, when Congress announced, I, I think even before the swearing in, uh, not Congress, but members of it, we're gonna seek impeachment and that sort of thing, it's become clear that one of the themes in all these investigations is uh, bringing down a president. Um, and the Constitution, I don't know, was written mm-hmm. to address Congress doing this sort of investigation. Um, I think what I'd suggest is that Congress's oversight has to be related to some legislative purpose, And I'm starting to wonder whether that's true in many of these. So maybe I'll just stop there and say, I think there's as much a policy set of conversation questions here as there are legal questions. And there's a lot less guidance from the Constitution on this one, I think, than there are in some of the other things we've talked through.
3: And I think, oh, go ahead, Phil. Oh, go ahead, what were you gonna say? Well, I was just gonna say, you know, the term legislative purpose is really interesting because I think the administration has used that to say, we're not going to give up these documents because we don't believe you have a legitimate legislative purpose in asking for them, which begs the question of then who gets to determine Mm -hmm. what is a legitimate legislative purpose? Mm -hmm. We would be naive to think that previous Congresses haven't been driven by partisan motivations in their oversight, right? I think that's part of it. So I don't know how you get to determining what is a legitimate legislative purpose other than the legislature determining that which i think is, is it,
4: problematic it, right mm-hmm. but but the supreme court has said that's what it is like mm-hmm. i mean this is they've ruled on this mm-hmm. uh, you know eastland versus US, united states servicemen's fund it was an eight-to-one mm-hmm. decision in 1975 mm-hmm. in which they explicitly said basically you know what is a legitimate legislative purpose if congress is doing it it's a legitimate legislative purpose. Like it's like oversight is part of Congress's job. And so they basically, what we talked about. So I thought about this because, you know, we talked about this when you were on last time, Tom, about the danger of trying to, uh, decipher motives. And this was a case in which the Supreme court basically said that we're not going to, we're not going to try to get at the motives. If Congress, Congress has oversight duties, uh, rights and, if they choose to do this, then it's a, you know, a legitimate legislative purpose. And they basically did it uh, in order to prevent what is happening right now. Basically, they said you have a problem when someone can essentially drag something out, an investigation out for five years, um, when Congress you know, is, is trying to, to look into something. And so, um, I, yeah, I mean, I think it, it seems, I don't know, it seems like we've, we've had this. I mean, I think that's where you have to have some level of faith. Right. We we've talked about whether you think the Congress is full of idiots or not, the power that we've given them says they can do this. So I also think back to what you've talked about before, Tom, which is that if you don't like that Congress has this power, then change it. Right. But Congress has this power. They have the right to do this.
1: So what limits do you see on that power? I I, I mean, that is to say, um, if Congress can define its own uh, prerogatives and to simply label a thing, legislative purpose, because they're doing it, that essentially means they can do anything they like. And I I guess I'd argue that would erase the co-equal part of three branches of government, because it would make Congress, in some ways, the one to which the other two would always be beholden.
4: I don't think it lets them do anything, right? I mean, this is still this gives them the right to subpoena these documents. They're still, if they were to leak these documents, they're still criminally liable. They're they're protected documents, right? They they are still limited in how they can do this. To say that you have a right, and as you're pursuing some sort of piece of legislation to investigate whatever you want, um, is I I I I I want to view this from the 99.9 percent of the time in which Congress is using subpoena power to. Uh, you know they're they need to understand an issue better right they're trying to get people to talk about stuff they need to look at documents and so I, I don't know I, I I would hate to limit the power for the I mean I I, I just don't see that for this subpoenaing something in and of itself I, it, it's again rather than doing away with that power you you when congress abuses it or when a member of congress abuses that power then you address it right but who's supposed um, so to if, address it well wouldn't that be the
3: public right i mean so if, if the democrats spend the next i don't know year or so all investigations go all in the public has the right to say you've gone too far you we want somebody else in there uh, you've 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 exceeded what we see as proper congressional oversight
2: but I think we're at a point where that's never that's never going to happen in a way that gets away from a forty nine fifty one split. Anyways, I, I mean we're so encamped in, in in our our particular subsections that there's there's no way you would ever get a preponderance of the American people to actually agree on that at this point. I think You're shaking I, the your alter- head.
4: No, I just I, I mean I th- I don't I think these concerns are valid. The alternative though is to say. Uh, that no one can investigate the president, right? And then the president can do literally anything that they want to do. And so, would I rather put faith in a in the in the Congress, which at least has you know a larger number of people? Um, it requires you know a, some sort of majoritarian vote on these issues, or would I rather say that nope, the Congress, you know, we're going to we're going to question everything Congress ever does, and, and and therefore the president can basically do whatever they want by saying that what Congress is doing is illegitimate.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I mean, going back to Tom's original point, there were talks about the end result of what these investigations could bring before the president was even sworn in. Realistically, that seems very politically, regardless of what the the specifics of... of a future investigation would be and what you think is going to happen, that suggests to me that you've already made up your mind and this, whatever, you're going to either subpoena documents or create a new investigation if a, another investigation doesn't have the results that you want, which realistically, after the Mueller report came out, that seems like it's that's the reality of the scenario more than anything at this point.
1: I, I want to push back a little on... Uh there's only two things that can happen here sort of approach. Either Congress can't do anything or Congress can do everything. And and ask whether or not, uh, instead of subpoenas, we had Article Three judicial oversight of requests for documents and requests for testimony, so that the third branch had an opportunity to weigh in to ask questions about. Uh, and And... There's a difference between motive in this case and the kind I think we've talked about in the past. We ask questions about motivation all the time, um, but in in ways I think that are different than trying to crawl inside the president's head and wonder what he was thinking at some particular time. So why not have an Article III judge decide instead of Jerry Nadler what documents the president has to produce for Congress? Why not have an Article III judge decide whether or not uh, Trump Jr. testifies again and does so consistent with longstanding rules about... Uh, production of documents and production of witnesses. I feel like that might be a third route. It empowers the other branch of government. It, it ameliorates the, uh, I think, effect of giving Congress almost unlimited power. Uh, and it gives the president, whoever that is, this one or another, a forum in which uh, to object to requests that appear to be overbroad and ones that might grind democracy down. The framers were all pretty clear about executive privilege and and impeachment, all of these things. They go beyond crimes, but all of them were driven by the understanding that the government had to work. And and government doesn't work now because of this in large measure.
3: Is it likely? So now, so Trump is taking this position of we're not going to turn our documents over. uh, Congress can move to the courts, correct? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. if they do that...
1: They started doing so today.
3: And it, right. it, it it's likely to work its way all the way to the Supreme Court, or do you think a lower court can, can more quickly have a definitive answer on something like this?
1: Um, let's start by saying one of these subpoena cases was heard by a federal judge today. And uh, uh, there was apparently considerable skepticism from the judge about yep. the position taken by the Trump attorney, which was uh, basically the president can resist all of these subpoenas. But I just want, here's, here's the other half of it, though. When, when Congress's lawyer was asked, can you imagine any circumstances that would be beyond the power of Congress? His two examples were, we couldn't ask for Trump's childhood diary, and we can't ask for a sample of his blood. Now, I think maybe that's intended to say we've got very broad oversight. <laughs> that's pretty uh, broad. Responsibility <laughs> and power. But I just, I think we should pause and ask ourselves, do we really want to give one branch of government a range of power to oversee the other ones that extend so far that the only example their lawyer can come up with is we're not getting his childhood diary or a sample of his blood. I don't. I think this trial judge is going to rule that he has to honor the subpoena. I think it'll move very quickly to a federal appellate court, which is likely to say the same thing. And I think the Supreme Court is capable of moving pretty quickly on a question, not maybe as fast as we wish they would, but I just would observe how quickly the census question got from Department of Commerce to Supreme Court argument. Theoretically, the court could take it straight from the federal trial court judge, and, and I think there's a strong likelihood they would. I, I, I'm, I'm for uh, balance, mm-hmm. And, and, mm-hmm. and I'm for process, and I'm for something that enforces some measure of good faith. And I'm having a hard time so, seeing good faith on either side in these
0: uh, so affairs.
1: I,
4: I, I so I disagree with you on that a little bit. I, I mean, I think um, the good faith.
0: I,
1: well, <laughs>
4: well, I, I don't want to create. A, I think there's a bit of a false equivalency in that some of the, I, I don't I think that what the Democrats are doing is legitimate. Like I, it's a little strange, like the question about whether this is a legitimate use of of subpoena power is in, in my mind. I, I know that you may not agree with this, but it, it's pretty obvious to me, right? I mean, this week Trump tweeted in response to a news article about how he avoided, you know, millions of dollars in taxes for a 20 year period by essentially over inflating his
0: his the loss. His losses. depreciation. The yeah, Guy depreciation. loves depreciation.
4: He called it. A, he called it a game or whatever. It, so in my mind, that's like that in and of itself is, you know, if we're if if Congress has the power to look into um, you know, tax policy, which they very much do, it's like at the core of what they do, setting tax policy, then it seems this is very, you know, to, to say we want to look at uh, the, the, the tax returns of, you know, the top, the people who are avoiding this, or, you know, this. it seems like this is, yeah, I mean, I, this doesn't seem like a difficult, uh, when there's questions about um, whether or not the president, you know, if you're trying to understand uh, whether or not the president has financial motivations for stuff, we have emoluments clause issues, there's all sorts of stuff that I think, yeah, there's legitimate oversight questions here that's not this is not, uh, you know, they're not just and, and they've waited two years. Like you said that they were, you know, they were talking about doing stuff before the before Trump was even in office. But I, I don't know, I, I I don't see as much bad faith. I think there are certain actors in the Democratic Party who, yeah, just want to see the president gone, but I, I see a lot of hesitation. You know, Nancy Pelosi, I think, is is scared of her own shadow for some weird reason. I think that I think moving forward on this would be a good thing for the Democrats. And yet there's hesitation amongst many of them. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I don't I, I'm, I'd am i be interested to hear your response to that. I, for, yeah, for me, on the surface, I don't see as much bad faith as, as you do, I think.
1: Um... Maybe the better way to answer it is to say I don't disagree with almost anything you said, but I'm worried about long-term precedent and I'm worried about establishing practices uh, that uh, ripple outward in ways that make government less effective than it is now. So while I'm not uh, arguing against any particular subpoena here, we could disagree, disagree about we're on the range of bad faith, how many or, or how much it is, I'm worried about um, and I think at some levels, perhaps the executive branch is establishing a pattern that gives too much power to Congress. I know that seems odd because we've been talking about the imperial presidency for, I don't, 20 years now, right? Um, so I guess what I'm after is what happens in 10 years or what happens in 15 years, and the argument I'm making is that an Article III judge now establishes a way forward that might take obvious questions like the one you're talking or the ones you're talking about, Phil, and easily adjudicate them harder questions when they come up, the childhood diary or the blood perhaps, uh, also get an Article 3 judge. So, for me, it's more about process and it's more about establishing precedent than it is the particular set of subpoenas this President is resisting. Is that, is that a fair answer?
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah.
3: And it, these these disputes happen in every administration. This isn't the first time that the, the executive branch and the legislative branch have fought. I mean, I think the Obama administration was very reluctant to give up documents. But the
1: number of subpoenas and witnesses asked mm-hmm. for here just add to the list right. of things that are unprecedented.
3: Right, right. It is, it is di- right. But we also haven't seen a president who said nothing, right? I'm not going to give you anything. Obama reluctantly gave up documents, mm-hmm. uh, reluctantly allowed individuals to testify. So Trump's position is, Unique in the sense where he says so did Clinton, right? Exactly, Uh, and the I mean also this this issue of executive privilege as well. But I mean, I I, what's curious to me is like Trump is so this issue of executive privilege. The Mueller report is out there, and he's still asserting executive privilege over all of it. And at the core, this is an investigation of the president. So he's he's you know exerting executive privilege of an investigation of himself. You know, which sort of is Mm -hmm. kind of a unique place to be as well.
1: But so uh, let's just pick one tiny dimension of that that it seems to me having a judge consider this uh, would help. Grand jury testimony is protected by statute. There's grand jury testimony both quoted in and therefore redacted and contained in the supporting documents for the Mueller uh, report. Those should not be made public in any way, shape, or form, and statute prohibits that. The request for an unredacted copy under the current circumstances suggests the likelihood that people will see that grand jury testimony beyond Congress. It would be very helpful to have an Article III judge say, there are statutory concerns with respect to some of the contents of the report, and they require a higher level of scrutiny, and here's how we're going to handle that. Because I'm, I guess what I'm after is I'm not sure either mm-hmm. side sees anything here other than political peril mm-hmm. or political advantage. life tenure judges can think about it differently. Mm-hmm
3: that seems much more reasonable right i mean Mm -hmm. to to have i think the grand jury testimony there's there are real reasons for that to never be released don mcgann not testifying that's harder for me to see what's Mm -hmm. the argument there Mm -hmm. why you don't want that Mm -hmm. and uh, so there's it does feel like there should be reasonable middle ground Mm -hmm. here
4: yeah well is this is this a question that might end up before the courts whether he can claim executive privilege on this because I mean it, it, he uh, my understanding is that he's doesn't have a whole lot of an argument in, in that uh, up to this point he has allowed everyone to talk to the Mueller investigation and yeah. all sorts of other people, so to at mm-hmm. this point say that that is privileged information um, is is uh, probably a losing argument right you can't you can't say after the fact that I you know I told everyone to talk about this, yeah, um, I encouraged them even to to, to cooperate, but now I, it's it's so secret and privileged you can't you can't share it.
1: Yeah, it feels like the president has a sort of crude way of thinking about conflict resolution, which is, uh, take is such the most a nice way to say
4: <laughs> <laughs> which take
1: the most extreme possible position. He thinks about it the way he thinks about negotiation. We've talked about this for uh, you know, a number of different ways. Uh, take the most extreme possible position. Mm-hmm. And maybe if you're pushed hard enough, negotiate yeah. in the other direction. Give a little. So his son's going to testify, but only for a couple of hours and only on limited topics. And my guess is that's what he thinks is going to happen with McGahn. But if, if you say yes first, at least in his mind, I think he thinks you've given up an advantage to the other side. But I'm with mm-hmm. you, Phil. I, I, don't, I don't see a reason or an argument for keeping that testimony from taking
3: place. If we step back from the constitutional element and look at the political element, it strikes me that Trump is playing this really well. Um, I mean, there, there aren't a whole lot of options for the Democrats short of impeachment. So they can move forward with an impeachment. And if they do that, I think, Tom, some of those subpoenas become higher priority, right? And they would move more quickly. But short of that, this is going to work its way through the court system. You could, I mean, I guess what can't Congress can lock people up, right? I mean, so they could hold people in contempt and breathe. They're not going to do that. Uh, this is likely to play out in the courts. And, and short of impeachment, it's probably going to slowly work its way through the courts to the point where we're in the midst of an election. And the Democrats have a losing hand if this... Mm-hmm. Sort of slowly plays out. I I think this is what Trump learned in business is that the art of the deal, man. Yeah, you tie it up in, in litigation, uh, and it allows him to continue to have his political arguments. But it's unlikely that the Democrats are going to be successful here. Am, mm-hmm. am I wrong, Phil?
4: Or um, well, I don't know. My my only the only hesitation with what you're saying is that I I think you're short term. I think you're right. I I am less certain about where what happens long term. If if he continues to resist, like public opinion polls are not they're not positive for him and they're going in the wrong direction like the, the number of people who think that uh, his taxes should be released that yeah. the full Mueller report should be released that Mueller should testify they continue to climb the number of people who think that Trump has something to hide the reason why he's not releasing his taxes is because he has something to hide it's like 70 some odd percent of americans so i think the more he fights this i, th- I think in the short run he can he can frame this as uh, you know the the crazy democrats are out to get him but I I, I I don't know. I, I think that you know, if this drags out for a year, um, I'm I'm just I'm not saying it will go the. I'm less certain. I yeah. could see that being that people that Americans get sick of it and want it to go away. I could see Americans just perceiving it as like, what the hell is this guy like? Like he's so desperate to hide it that it, I I I am I'm, I'm just less certain about which way that goes in the long run. Mm-hmm. I uh, I have a
1: solution. Okay, <laughs> please <laughs> no, go I'm ahead. I'm serious about it. Uh, Half of it is that we should empower the judiciary to make the judgments about these subpoenas and that sort of thing. But the second is, uh, Congress could censure the president. It's never happened before. Um, And it would be an historic event if it happened now. And I think Trump does worry about reputation and legacy, uh, history. Um, And I wonder if Congress couldn't uh, listen, I, Nancy Pelosi's not impeaching not because she's nice and, and good faith. Uh, Nancy Pelosi's not impeaching because she's afraid it'll blow up in her face. Yeah. Mm-hmm. right. No. Uh, she's smart. I mean, she's smart yeah. in terms
3: of the political implications of it. But,
1: but wouldn't it be uh, uh, to her advantage to stand up and say, we think impeachment at this point is a bad idea. We'd like the American people to rule on the presidency. And we're going to continue to press as hard as we can for the investigat- uh, investigatory materials we've asked for. In the meantime, I'm introducing a resolution to censure the president. It's never been done in history, but we think there's an unprecedented level of resistance to uh, transparency and justice, and uh, that's the way we're going to send our message. Then a president who, for the first time in history, has—I'm b- not arguing mm-hmm. that I—for I, you know, the first time in history, a president's running with that on his record. Mm-hmm. If I was her, that's what I'd do. I don't want to be her. Right, right, right. <laughs> I want to be any of these people. But yeah. it feels like, again, there's middle ground here. There are ways for both sides to do this, uh, to navigate these difficult straits without ruining democracy.
4: Here's the spot that I get stuck on. I, I, I like what you said. Um, the part that like, I find that I have a hard time getting past is the notion that the American people should rule on this. I, it's not that I'm opposed to the American people ruling on it, but I, I um you know, we were talking about the danger of precedence, right? And so uh, the idea that if the precedent is that the American people decide if the President has committed of you know some legal violation or whatever is a total abdication of Congress's power. So then, you know, the president, if Donald Trump is right, he can shoot somebody wherever on Fifth Avenue and get away with it. If American people don't care. It should still matter. Right. If the American people are still willing to reelect him, if he is, uh, you know, violating all sorts of constitutional premises, then, um, you know, Congress should intervene. It's not just it shouldn't. This is I feel like the, the Constitution shouldn't be a popularity contest. Right. Yeah. And, um, and
1: I'm not making the case that it should. I guess I'm saying um, I had a two part solution. But the first part, remember, was have these Article three judges making decisions about subpoenas. Move that forward. Establish precedent. Lay out a process, make sure the next time this happens and i 'm thinking that it's not uh, this is not a unique set of American events that we 've got rules of law that address very specifically these kinds of things, and at the same time if you're, if you're Congress and you want to have a response short of impeachment but more than nothing, censure might be the way to do that i agree we shouldn't we shouldn't jettison the law for public opinion
4: yes so, i, I. I don't know. What, I don't know what we're doing. How are we on time? Uh, Ooh, you're good. Keep going. A few more minutes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I have, I have a totally different, because I, I find myself continuing to think about the idea of impeachment and precedent. And, and because you're talking about this isn't, the, this isn't likely the last time this will happen. I, I continue to, in the midst of this, think back to Nixon. And, and um, I've found myself spending more time than I probably should <laughs> thinking about the pardon of Nixon. Um, Which was done Mm -hmm. as this, you know, we're going to bring the country together sort of thing. And I can't help but come around to the idea, or I keep coming around to the idea, that that was actually a terrible mistake. That if if Nixon had not been pardoned and had gone to prison, that there would have been this precedent that presidents are not above the law. And Mm -hmm. I I don't – What do you – Am I naive for thinking that? Am I, I know that we hadn't prepped this. This isn't yeah. part of our plan to discuss. But I mean, so in that instance, if you could go back in time and not pardon Nixon, do you think things would be different now in this sort of situation? Or the presidents would view there would be a different view about presidential powers and the, the way the law applies to presidents? There could be some accountability, right? I mean, there there really isn't when you think
3: about the president, uh, whether we're talking about the conduct of of Nixon or we could talk about potential war crimes that various presidents over the years have engaged in. They're never held accountable for that. They may be condemned. Uh, by history, but nobody ever faces real accountability in terms of, of court of law. And I will say Trump is pushing those boundaries, whether we're talking about the emoluments clause or, I mean, there's a lot of issues. Mm-hmm. The obstruction, I mean, you know, sitting down and reading volume two of the Mueller report, it's really powerful. It does feel like he obstructed justice. Uh, and, and I don't think he's ever
4: going to face a court for that behavior. But this, well, again, I, go oh, go ahead, Phil. I, I think this is why... Uh, just put this out there and then let you talk. I think this is why it matters because I think in this case there is a chance that I, I don't think that Mueller report necessarily, but I think all of these little issues that have been referred out about taxes and about the the Trump Foundation and all of this that's been referred out to other prosecutors around the country, I think there's a real chance that somebody... Something comes of one of those after Trump is out of office mm-hmm. and if it's back to this partisanship thing And if we perceive it just as a Democrat versus Republican mm-hmm. thing, uh, I don't know I think that's the there's potential for a real constitutional crisis there um, as, as that moves forward And I don't know if
2: it would be different had things gone differently. I'll yeah. shut up now next <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we're gonna cut that from the, the final thing. Um, No, I I mean, I I think that's I think it's a reasonable point and we've talked about it previously that you brought it up right now bill that this is kind of that moment in history where there should be some sense of accountability and there clearly are issues that need to be dealt with and we don't have good mechanisms to do that i think trump understands that the democrats especially democratic leadership they do not have the political will to do anything Beyond what they've already done, what the what has been what is precedent. We can talk about impeachment. We can talk about subpoenas and and things that we've already seen previously. But going beyond that, I think especially Pelosi sees that as is radioactive, trying to mm-hmm. put something else into the system that will be perceived as politically motivated because it's something that hasn't been done before. And it comes off as a desperate ploy. Sure. Okay. Um, that, you know, dances around the extreme of impeachment or doing nothing. Mm -hmm. On top of the fact that you have a Democratic Party that realistically, again, between the establishment, moderate establishment, and the increasingly large progressive left wing are at complete odds with each other. And they have not come up with a solidified platform or a consensus on what needs to be done, which I I think he's, he's just... As as much as he's, he's a buffoon with this stuff, he's still playing them against each other, mm-hmm. which is a brilliant political yeah. move. He's,
3: he's good at that.
2: Yeah. Um, I, I just... In terms of going to the American people, I... I, I mm, to me, that seems like... If you're Nancy Pelosi or establishment Democrats going to a population that has been proven to already be easily influenced by misinformation or information that doesn't necessarily jive with what you're trying to get across, whether you're talking about 2016 or the Mueller report or anything in the, in the, the interim, I don't think that's the best way to go either. And I think that's going would easily mm-hmm. politicize the situation even more than it already is, which is hilarious to even think about. I, I don't think they have a good way out of this at this point. It's really tricky. And and even though I'm deeply troubled by much of what the president has
3: done, I'm also con- worried about pursuing this legally, thinking about Nixon, right? And, and also thinking about the suddenly you're one of the things that troubles me most about Trump is that he's now talking about locking up his opponents. So there was a the Hillary Clinton talk and now there's Joe Biden talk. You, you don't want it to evolve into a situation where that's acceptable. Where you're saying, you know, you should be you should be charged. And I just I, I if you go after Trump, it, it fits into this politic politicization argument where everybody is targeting everybody for criminal behavior, mm-hmm.
4: even if one might be a criminal. Right. Well, that, that's where I mean, I, this is my critique <laughs> that, you know, I said earlier that Nancy Pelosi seems scared of her own shadow here. But that, this is where it seems to me the Republicans are pretty good at shaping the views of their followers and Democrats are busy shaping their views in response to their supporters Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. Um, and and this is um you know, I saw somebody pointed out that, uh, that we're going to talk about the Alabama abortion bill later. Um, in Alabama, only like 30% of the population supports this, but the Republicans are moving forward with it. Um, and like nationwide, there's something like 70% of Americans who think that Trump should release his tax returns, but the and and you know the Mueller investigation should move forward or whatever. Um, and Democrats, and you know, one's got 70% of Am- a popular support and is afraid to do anything with it because mm-hmm. they're going to make people mad, and the other. Is moving forward on that, and I don't know. I think this is where the Democrats have to make an argument, right? There's a difference between what's going on with Trump and what you know the investigations into. I, I'm not saying that there should never have been an investigation into Benghazi, but like the like repeated, you know, years of doing this. There's a difference between an independent, you know, a special prosecutor who publishes of you know this massive document citing all of this stuff and moving forward with that versus other things and democrats have to be good at making that argument that this is different and we're not doing this for political gain here's why this is actually of concern and they're they're so busy trying to get the pulse of the population they're not Mm. busy shaping the the pulse of the population i think i don't know maybe that's not fair to me uh, fair of me to them because i think there are democrats who are trying to do that but I don't know. I, I just I think they need to act on principle more and less on you know what people what what they think people want to vote for or mm-hmm. whatever. But they might not get reelected, Phil. That's true. I know <laughs> there are worse things. <laughs> the Nixon thing's really
1: interesting. I'm I'm thinking of a, a thing I do in my business law class with respect to jury nullification. <clears throat> and when Spiro Agnew didn't face justice, juries all over America refused to convict. And it was basically the position that they took. Listen, if, if those people can get away with this sort of thing, I'm not sending somebody to prison for drug offenses or something like that. Is that, that right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you think to yourself, uh, I don't know how different it would be had Nixon gone to prison, but I'm pretty sure it's, it's negatively different because he did not. You know, I, people look at this corrosive and, and deeply unprincipled way of conducting government, and I think they lose faith, not just in government, but in law, that's, and, I and they know, act that's in ways they act in ways that are responsive to it. So it models. Yeah. This models for lower levels of, I of courts. I, I, I think it does. I think it does. So yes, I'd I'd love to have seen Nixon go to prison for breaking the law. I'd like to have seen Agnew go to prison for breaking the law. Mm-hmm. I'd like to have seen Clinton uh, suffer consequences for committing perjury, uh, and I'd like to see Trump, if 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 it turns out. After all, these subpoenas sub- 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 and investigations, and it looks like it probably would, I'd like to see him punished. Because if they're not, uh, you know, listen, this is a form of income inequality, right? <laughs> this is the elite uh, living in ways that none of the rest of America does. And, and it's, it's
0: terrible.
4: Yeah. If well, yeah, we believe good, in Nick. the idea that no one is above the law, then no one should be above
0: yeah, no the law. no one should be above the Especially law. Especially
4: the individuals in charge of the law. Right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is good, Nick.
3: We're above the law. All right. Let's talk <laughs> beer. <laughs> Phil, start us off.
4: Uh, so I have, um, I went I made my regular run uh, down to Brewtopia today in Keen. I'll give them a, a plug. Um, and uh, so I, I grabbed a couple of loggers I've been doing lots of IPAs. I did a, a few um, stouts, uh, and I wanted to try some loggers So the first one, I've got a couple of them over the next couple of weeks. This one is Riverton Flyer. It's from Foundation Brewing Company, which is in Maine. Um, it's a pilsner. Uh, this is, it's really nice. I don't know my, my thought on it. This is, it's good. It's malty. I, it's, you know, I, I, I thoroughly enjoy it. I would gladly have another. If I were sitting at a bar, I would say to the bartender, give me another. (laughs) I don't know how much it's going to like, I don't know how memorable it will be. And I don't know how much of that is the beer itself and how much of that is just lagers, right? A lager is just a nice beer. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I don't I'm not real sure what to what to, you know, how to walk away, how to like leave that. Um, I, I would not discourage anyone from trying it. Uh, but yeah, there you go. <laughs> Phil's reviews have gotten so much better. Thoughtful.
0: They evolve in different directions.
2: <laughs>
3: you know, this, is, this is good. Yeah. Oh, boy. Tom, why don't you tell us about the two good beers we've just enjoyed? Mm-hmm. We have
1: two great uh, uh, barrel-aged beers from Empirical, which is a uh, north side of the city uh, brewery. Both uh, are uh, small batch. Both are uh, strong. One's a robust porter from uh, uh, Breckenridge Bourbon Barrels. The other is a Baltic porter out of Buffalo Trace barrels, so both uh, kind of some boozy stuff. I I think porters do better when they're barrel-aged than stouts because they're not, at the end, so heavy that they're undrinkable. And I think what's really nice about both of these porters is, even sitting in bourbon barrels, they're drinkable and, and light, of course, is not the right word, but they are lighter than a big, heavy stout.
3: Well a lot of the a lot of those are so boozy. These mm-hmm. these were yeah. certainly This not. is not Goose yeah. island crap. This right. is really yeah. good.
1: Tell mm-hmm.
3: us <laughs> what you really think, Nick? Yeah. Wow.
1: Um,
3: yeah, so the second one we had was the porter, right? Baltic porter. Yes.
1: They're both Porters,
3: a Baltic, right, porter Baltic Porter and a robust Porter. The Baltic Porter was a little sweeter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, 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 the first one we had, I thought that was fantastic. And then I thought the Baltic Porter was even a little mm-hmm. bit better, just I a would little agree. bit sweeter. Mm-hmm. As it warmed up a little bit, uh, it, it kind of grew more mm-hmm. and more on me. That's exactly
2: what yeah. I thought. It's yeah. a great
3: beer style. It really mm-hmm. is. Baltic
1: Porter is. It's a great beer style.
3: Now, you said these have been bottled over a year ago.
1: Yeah, one of them, uh, back in 18, actually the one we liked better, the, the Baltic Porter. Um, January of nineteen, dark multi beers get better with age. Hoppy uh, beers do poorer mm. with age. Hmm. So the faster you drink a beer with hops, the better off you are. Um, but you can you can actually cellar big heavy multi beers.
2: Interesting. Yeah, I did not know that. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna have to take all that wine out of the fridge and just replace <laughs> it with beer now. Who wants 50 bottles of wine that I oh. won't drink? Oh, that was really good. Um, yeah, if you guys uh, want to check out the beers that we try on the podcast, uh, download Untapped on iOS or Android. Uh, look for Barstool Politics on there uh, and check out all the reviews.
1: I'm um, going to just say only 145 bottles in the entire world is that? of wow. this gorgeous, robust Ooh. porter. Oh, we were wow. fancy. This is, yeah. this is,
2: we're in elite territory here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, speed rounds with Game of Thrones at the end of yes, the speed round. So stay around. tuned for that. All right, so we're going to start, with, uh, start off
3: kicking off with an issue of sanctuary cities. It's a topic that's often in the news, but not one we've talked about on the podcast yet. While there's no official definition, the label generally applies to cities that declare they won't assist the federal government in immigration enforcement and deportation. Uh, they have been a regular target of President Trump, and he's threatened to block federal funding to those jurisdictions. And more recently announced on Twitter that he wants to develop a program shipping migrants who cross the border to sanctuary cities across the country. Uh, to justify the disregard for federal law, sanctuary cities point to a 1997 Supreme Court ruling that the federal government can't require state officials to enforce federal law, a doctrine known as the anti-commandeering principle. Tom, you find this topic to be re- a really, really important one. Why don't you walk us through what you see as the significant issues at play?
1: This is the second it's installment in our so. series on uh, the world is coming to an end, or maybe <laughs> to quote the old great REM song, it's the end of the world. Um, I'm going to frame this one as a question, and, and the question is, who's in charge around here? Um, because I want to think more broadly about sanctuary and, and, and the sanctuary movement than simply commandeering clause and immigration. So start with what I think was a trend, uh, uh, we could call it marijuana sanctuary, and that is that we've now got approaching 20 states that have legalized recreational marijuana, which is still a Schedule I uh, federal drug. It is illegal. The Department of Justice could shut these dispensaries down tomorrow if it wished to. Uh, I'm not 100% sure why it hasn't. Um, popular opinion is probably a good reason, Je- but, mm-hmm. Jeff Sessions but it, but it seems charge to anymore. me sanctuary <laughs> has come to mean something broader than uh, can we uh, compel state law enforcement to work with federal law enforcement uh, on, on immigration. And uh, I think this is one of the interesting things in American law today. Who's in charge? Is it the federal, the state, the county, or city governments? Florida has a state statute banning sanctuary cities in Florida. Some (laughs) of the cities that have been banned from doing that say, we're going to do it anyway, (laughs) which is essentially like Colorado saying, we're not allowed to sell marijuana, we're going to do it anyway. Um, We talked before we started taping about a really interesting movement across Central America involving sanctuary gun counties. There's now 106 counties in uh, the United States that have declared themselves as sanctuaries in terms of gun laws. So what do we mean by that? If there's a federal bump stock ban, they won't honor it. If the gun age is 21, they won't honor that. Um, The the point being, where does this stop? Uh, At what point, you know, Phil, come back to your point about respecting the law. uh, I don't know how we make sanctuary work if it is sanctuary from law, uh, or from legality, mm-hmm. uh, this is really worrying. I'm going to use a bill phrase. This is deeply troubling. <laughs> 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 because there's no end to it, right? right. Now, and and I, 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 the Second Amendment crowd, I don't think, is just responding to sanctuary and immigration. There's certainly that in it. You know, This is downstate Illinois saying to upstate Chicago, which very flashily said we're a sanctuary city and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, what did Effingham say? Well, that's great. We're a Second Amendment sanctuary. Bring your guns, bring your bump stocks, bring your 16-year-olds, uh, you know, come on down.
3: Do you see this as, so the, the history of the of the republic, we've seen lots of battles between the federal government and the state government. It, does this feel different to you than previous, or, or, or do we have to go all the way back to the founding and some of those battles between the states and the federal government.
1: It feels different to me in this sense. There, there, there's certainly always been a Federalist, anti Federalist mm-hmm. debate in America. Oh, I love that you mentioned the Federalists.
0: Good. <laughs> <laughs> anti- no, doubt federalist. Hamil- <laughs> no doubt a Hamiltonian sitting to my left, a big government, national,
1: uh, a Madisonian in this chair, as you might imagine. Uh, but this feels different to me in the sense that it is so overt so uh, contrarian, and in some ways, so disruptive. Uh, Congress could change tomorrow, and maybe it will, uh, marijuana laws. The president, frankly, could shift what schedule marijuana is on and change uh, the regulation of marijuana almost unilaterally. But these states are saying, and think of another one, physician-assisted suicide. Uh, There are all sorts of places where states are simply saying overtly, aggressively, and unapologetically, we're not gonna follow the law. It doesn't apply to us. Mm -hmm. Um, And while it might have felt really good for people, and I think a lot of people thought this whole sanctuary, we're a sanctuary campus, we're sitting on one. Mm -hmm. Well, that feels good to some people, but I'll wager they don't like the idea that in Effingham people are saying we're a sanctuary from gun laws. Mm -hmm. And the problem is I'm not sure how you distinguish in, in a meaningful way one from the other. That is, it. I don't know how you say you can't be a Second Amendment sanctuary, but at the same time say, well, it's perfectly fine to be, let's say, uh, an immigration sanctuary. Frankly, I think the people in Effingham say we've got a Second Amendment matter here. Immigration doesn't rise to a constitutional level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Phil's so smiling because <laughs> here he comes. <laughs> no,
4: no, no. I, I just, I'm curious, how do you, so as someone who, uh, Likes the the idea of law, but also doesn't like the idea of the federal government telling <laughs> us what to do. How do you like like what what do you like I, I can see you sort of wrestling with this, but do you have mm. thoughts on what the answer is? Uh,
1: well, let me start by saying I don't like state government or county government telling me what to do either, so
0: <laughs> <laughs> a pox on all their houses <laughs> um, well, I'm,
1: I, I, I'm going to default to what I have in the past, and that is it seems to me that we need the organs of government to do their job. And, and if there is, Phil, to go back to your point on popular opinion, uh, the percentages of Americans that want legalized marijuana are so high, um, it's almost impossible for me to imagine an argument in Congress for not doing this. Uh, I, it, it, it's overwhelming. Um, and there's probably some that don't say it out loud, but are still using it, uh, mm-hmm. you know? So... It it feels to me, though, I'm going to go back to process, and I'm going to go back to uh, uh, order. We should change the law in the ways uh, that free people, and we should change the law in ways that reflect uh, maximum liberty for people. And I think when states and counties and cities and school districts and colleges say, we know what the law is, and we are going to knowingly violate it, I don't think a libertarian says, well, that's fine because I don't like regulation and law.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think a libertarian might say there's too much law if you think you need to do that. But let's change the law in the ways we've we've constructed the system to change it.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: I share your concern. I'm going to play devil advocate here. But what about the idea that democracy, the states are the laboratory of democracies. And you allow this to play mm-hmm. out and mm-hmm. see what happens in these sanctuary cities of all these different varieties. Mm-hmm. And you let that inform future decisions. I mean, is, is there a danger for letting this play out over a variety of different topics?
1: Well, I think one danger is precisely the one that's happening with gun sanctuaries. That is, I'm, I'm, I suspect that there is some risk associated with easier access to a wider range of kinds of guns, ammunition. Uh, another dimension of some of these is uh, uh, Kevlar vests and mm-hmm. and uh, so there, there are risks uh, uh, inherent in saying we're going to do a thing uh, that is illegal and is illegal for a reason.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, marijuana feels different to me because the risks, I suppose, are lower. Sure. Uh, I want the laboratory of the states to work, but it seems to me the laboratory of the states could work in a way that follows process, mm-hmm. uh, that, that honors law, and that pressures the federal government to produce room for them to be a laboratory. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm not sure it, you're, What you are is is uh, uh, a meth lab, not a laboratory. Uh, there's laboratories, and then there's meth labs that Ooh. sit out in the middle of nowhere, doing a thing they know to be illegal, but meeting a market demand. That's that's the winner.
4: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I know we're way over time, but I want to say I want to be dark. <laughs> <laughs> I can't help but feel like this uh, this doesn't end well. I mean, it, this seems mm-hmm. like a bigger part of this picture that we've talked about throughout the two years of this, mm-hmm. al- almost two years of this podcast, of um, this sort of sorting of America, or this separating, this partisanship, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's playing out ideologically, but it's playing out geographically yes. as well, right? And so that's you right. have coasts, you have urban versus rural, but, but people are like actually sorting physically as well as ideologically. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the end result is that this this approach to sanctuary, I, I'm not necessarily saying that I'm opposed to the idea, but that the the end result is this sort of giving up on the collective. It feels yeah, like right yep, this yeah. idea of we don't we don't agree with each other, uh-huh. but we're going to fight it out in this in this you know in in Congress or through the uh-huh. through the democratic system. Right, and it feels a little bit like a, a stepping back from that, giving up on the collective. We're going to do our own thing, um, and I don't I don't that does. Not to be too doom and gloomy, but it does that. As I look forward down that path, that doesn't seem to go to a good place. <laughs> this um, is only going to proliferate on a variety of different issues. Well,
1: th- and let's say this: this is giving up on federalism. Yep. This this isn't giving up on uh, you know uh, guns or something. It's giving up on the concept that we can live together.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And and even though there are complicated questions of state versus federal law. This is giving up even on trying to answer those questions in ways that are sophisticated.
3: There are going to be times that you lose and you accept losing. You say, I don't agree with that issue. But for the collective, it's in everybody's interest to do so. Because in the future, I may win on certain issues. Mm -hmm. And this suggests we're moving away from that.
2: That's right. Yeah. That's frightening. Oh, oh, Civil War. That will be fun. Effingham's
1: going to win. Yeah, right. That's where I'm going. (laughs) That's true. Oh, that's
2: disturbing. All right,
1: next
3: topic. In a 5-4 decision on Monday, the Supreme Court overturned a case and in the process caused a rather significant kerfuffle among many who closely watched the court. In particular, much focus was placed on the dissent of Justice Stephen Breyer. In the case Franchise Tax Board of California, they've got to get better with these names, versus Hyatt, the court (laughs) voted 5-4 to overrule Nevada versus Hall. A 1979 decision that allowed an individual to sue a state in the, court, uh, in the courts of another state. By overruling a 40-year-old precedent, many, including Justice Breyer, are wondering what this means for the court's respect for precedent. In his dissent, Breyer argues that stare decisis requires us to follow Hall, not overrule it. Breyer closed by stating, quote, Today's decision can only cause one to wonder which cases the court will overrule next. Tom, many are wondering what this what this is sign, signals for the court in the future and the, the pre, uh, issue of precedent. Uh, what should we take away from
1: this ruling? Uh, this is a really important one. Uh, let's start by saying the Hyatt case is of very limited importance, other than the conversation I think that it has produced now about stare decisis. Um, but I think this is more complicated than the the sort of ominous, and God knows Breyer's very complicated and, and sophisticated, but um, this is a really hard question uh, that is respect for precedent, the circumstances under which one does it, and, and I'm a little disappointed that Breyer, who's another one of the justices, I think a lot of, um, intimated that bad things are coming because of this particular case. Um, it, it felt like trying to make Justice Thomas look bad, and, and more importantly, it felt like um, trying to color outside the lines a little bit or or foreshadow on, on row. So I guess what I'd say is this. This all comes from Justice Brandeis.
2: You are a mess. What is going on? This is, <laughs> Sorry. This is Bill opening beers <laughs> over here. First, he uses the word kerfuffle. Talking. I'm paying attention, I swear. <laughs>
1: I was going to just not say a word about you using the word <laughs> kerfuffle until you started opening these beers and, and started drinking the foam off the top of them. spill on the carpet. <laughs> I'm talking about my beloved Supreme Court, and I've got to do it after you say kerfuffle and then spill beer. I, this is terrible. Now listen oh to me, God. <laughs> so Justice Brandeis said, and this is, this is really the start of this <laughs> conversation, um, it is better that the law is settled than that it's settled in the right way. And so what's come from that Brandeis way of thinking is uh, there's greater value in stability, longevity, and reliability there isn't having the de- than there isn't having the decision be correct, uh, now, as much as Breyer worries, the court has reversed itself more than three hundred times, and I think it's important to say that. And it's done so in a lot of ways that I think everybody at this table and everybody listening uh, will think is a good idea. I just I, I thought to jot down a couple. Plessy versus Ferguson was overruled by Brown versus Board of Education, uh, and, and desegregated our schools. Um, and in fact, in these last three, you won't even recognize the case that was overruled. You're only going to recognize the case that did so. The Pace case is overruled by Loving, which created the right to interracial marriage. Um, Bowers versus Hardwick was overruled by Lawrence, and that subsequently laid the groundwork for Obergefell. Um, The Wolf case was uh, overruled by Mapp uh, and created the exclusionary rule. What I'm after here is to pretend that simply honoring precedent because it is precedent uh, is terrible thinking, and we've never benefited from doing that. So the question is, what do we mean when we say there are some laws that are sufficiently well settled that even if they're wrong, we should honor them? And maybe I'll just throw that out for a minute. I got a couple of other observations. I don't think Roe is in danger, but we can talk about that in a minute. Mm
3: -hmm. I'll let somebody who didn't (laughs) spill any beer respond first. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe Phil Phil
4: and I can uh, produce a kerfuffle (laughs) between the two of us. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm I'm curious about I, like I would like to talk in a minute about the Alabama. Um, yeah, that Alabama's going to be the additional that, thing that... how that plays out. Mm-hmm. But it does seem like there is an. I, I understand why people are concerned in this climate about the idea of the court sort of throwing out precedent. Um, but it, there does seem to be something ironic about the argument that throwing out precedent, like disregarding precedent creates a dangerous
0: precedent mm-hmm. <laughs>
4: yeah i mean that's basically what he's arguing right mm-hmm, that yeah. by doing this by throwing this out we are creating a precedent that precedent doesn't matter but that mm-hmm. that doesn't there's a logical fallacy there mm-hmm. in my mind that mm-hmm. uh that i'm not sure okay but uh, here's
3: the thing though. shouldn't i guess my thought is overturning precedent should be in consequential cases And some of Breyer's argument here was that this didn't really matter all that much. And so when you're going to overturn precedent, shouldn't it be for meaningful issues, not one where there isn't a whole lot of concern?
2: I don't think you need it to be a meaningful one. You need it to have it relate to a potentially meaningful one now. Nobody cares about this individual case. The only thing that anyone is concerned about at this point is- Well, Hyatt cares about it. Well, yeah, you know what I mean. And Hyatt's screwed, right? Yes. Yeah. Outside of that, the general public cares about abortion because you hear about it day in and day out. That's the only reason to do this at this point.
1: I'm not sure I accept what you're
2: saying, though, Bill. Fine. Uh, (laughs) No, Nick- I I know. (laughs) I just the definition of the consequential of that is
1: that it is in front of the Supreme Court. Let's yeah. start with that. But second, the idea that uh, something has to meet some sufficiency or, or significance <coughs> test yeah. before you'd consider overruling precedent, I, I, I think it pains me to say, that it hurts me to say this. Brandeis, I think, was wrong.
0: Okay.
1: A bad judgment is a bad judgment, and it begs to be corrected. And that doesn't matter whether it's in a case no one's ever heard of, or a big deal case like Plessy uh, or, or one of the ones that followed. I think you correct errors.
3: On the previous cases that you talked about, where they overruled precedent for good reason, right? And you say, like, of course, mm-hmm. we look back on those. Those mm-hmm. were good decisions. Were those overwhelming? De- were those 9 nothing, Or were, were a lot of them 5-4 decisions? I'm, I'm curious to see, because I'm also wondering about the number. When you overturn mm-hmm. precedent, should the justices say, we've mm-hmm. got to have more than 5? Or I mean I don't know. The, honestly, yeah, I'm going to have to, to be it. honest
1: and tell you I don't know the vote yeah. counts in these cases. No, I'm mean, not specifically. I'm guessing. I'm guessing that Maps case was probably nine nothing in a Warren Court decision. Yeah. Um, Lawrence was was something like six to three, is okay. my recollection, or something along those lines. So it's not. But again, do we want to premise our decision about when we overrule bad law on how many justices vote right. to do it, or how big the case is? Sure. Mm-hmm. So go to Roe versus Wade for a minute. One of the things I, uh, so the background that that Phil alludes to is Alabama uh, passes a statute uh, uh, that effectively makes abortion illegal in the state. They're teeing up uh, a Supreme Court uh, uh, review. Of course, this is not a new approach. Brown versus Board was teed up. People moved into those districts for the express purpose of overturning uh, Plessy versus Ferguson. Uh, And they should have. It's a good idea. Uh, Alabama clearly wants a route to the Supreme Court and they're trying to produce a state statute that will get them there. Uh, the reason I think they're safe is that I don't think John Roberts is a fifth vote to overturn Roe v.ersus Wade. Uh, I'll, uh, let me just say this, I will go on to uh, our political forecasting. I predict will buy it. lots of shares, predict it. Uh, <laughs> John Roberts is a solid vote in favor of uh, upholding Roe v.ersus Wade. Um, I'll I'll bet lots of my money on that. But uh, the the interesting question is, why is it people think Roe is different than Plessy or any other decision that five justices regard as constitutionally infirm? Let me just say this. 60 of the 300 reversals were cases that were older, that is to say between original case and reversal, than it would be Roe to a case this next uh, merits term. So Longevity, which is a third thing you often hear about, is also not a thing that we've had any respect for in the past. Sixty of the three hundred were older precedents than Roe is. Um, so if it's bad law, it's bad law. Mm-hmm. Do you
3: think that this court will be more open to overturning precedent than previous courts?
1: I mean, uh, separate from I like, think like the it's Roe a v. statistical Wade. matter, the answer is probably no. Yeah. They've they've overruled themselves. Uh, relatively uh, frequently, 300, you know, that's it, just take American history. That, it's about a case and a half a year. I don't mean to say they do it at, uh, one and a half times a year, but 300 cases is not 10. Uh, this is not a thing that's rare. Uh, and, and this court has, the Breyer's been on a court that has reversed. Uh, Janus, uh, the union case we talked about last year, uh, reversed a, a previous precedent. So I don't know that they'll be more inclined to reverse precedent. I don't know that Roe is particularly at risk. And I guess I'd say that for those that think Roe uh, is at huge risk, that's the crowd that wants Heller and Citizens United reversed. Mm -hmm. And I'd say the same thing about those things that I do about Roe. If there's a legitimate constitutional argument that the original decision was wrong, we should change it. And we shouldn't worry about whether or not 50 years has passed versus five we shouldn't worry about whether the case is important or not, and we shouldn't worry about whether you can get six justices or nine.
2: Good. Agreed. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Come on, Phil, you got to say no. <laughs> I'm going to feel really disappointed. If, no kerfuffle? No <laughs> kerfuffle? No. <laughs> wow. All right, I mean, that, that,
4: fits in, that fits into, uh, I, I, uh, bef- I know you're trying to move on, but I mean, that fits into this larger idea, which is. Uh, rather than being sort of on the defensive, this is where it's important for you know yeah. people to. I mean, you know, the constitutional issues shouldn't be. In theory, they shouldn't be subject to to votes, right? Mm-hmm. But I mean, I know they are, right? We can, <clears throat> we can hit the constitution that way, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's where it, it, it's it's you you shouldn't say we shouldn't overturn things in the past ever. Um, you need to make good arguments about why overturning this particular one is a really bad idea. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: Predicting these justices is hard. Kavanaugh sided with the four liberals right. mm-hmm. to say that Apple's app shop may violate antitrust law. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, you, you, I think we all think there's five obvious conservatives and Roe is at risk in that sort of thing. I think these are these are more nuanced kinds of decisions. Mm-hmm. Mm. You want a, cu- a couple quick statistics? You sure. I know yeah. we're of course. Please go. Um, no we still have big cases to come so the next time I'm here we're gonna have the census we're gonna have the cross case uh, and I'm guessing we're gonna have gerrymandering mm-hmm. so that's gonna be a hot one uh, the Ninth Circuit remains for like the 3,000th year in a row the most reverse circuit um, by sharp. a long very long shot they're 20% of the whole Supreme Court docket and 80% of their cases have been the ones that have been heard have been reversed Justice Thomas at this point has the most majority opinions and that's five uh, 16 of the 39 cases that have been decided were unanimous. And I just thought to say the highest agreement rate, this won't surprise you, is Sotomayor and Ginsburg. They agree 96% of the time. But here's one that I think is worth saying, and then let's move on to trade. Uh, the lowest is Alito and Sotomayor. That doesn't surprise you. But maybe it will surprise you to hear that 49% of the time is, is their disagreement rate, which is to say 51% of the time the right and left most justices on the, well, uh, maybe I'm maybe exaggerating yeah. that agree.
3: Mm-hmm. That suggests that a lot of the time the court is in sync on mm-hmm. a decision, and it yeah.
1: suggests that John Roberts is doing a good job. Mm-hmm. I know I'm a, a sort of a broken record on that, but I, I, it feels to me like he is navigating a really difficult time in American history mm-hmm. really well. Mm-hmm.
2: Well said. I mean, uh, no uh, sorry again. I know we need we to move talk on. talk trade, Nick. <laughs> no, but I mean, he brings... And Game of Thrones. <laughs> yes. No, it's an important point. I think yeah. people, these are discussions that are, are never had in, in, in public view. And realistically, the fact that there is as much consensus as there is, there is when the narrative that most people hear is that the world is on fire and mm-hmm. nobody agrees with anything and all that you hold dear is going to be overturned and mm-hmm. taken away from you. Mm-hmm. This is important stuff that needs to be out there more. And we talk about the most controversial cases. We talk 5 4 cases. We don't talk about a lot of
3: the 9 0 mm-hmm. or 8 to 1 mm-hmm. cases. And yeah, that, mm-hmm. that also matters.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And we don't talk about the fact that while the, the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, just to pick two on opposite kind of ends, everybody thinks they know who Justice Kavanaugh is. Right. Mm-hmm. Here's a guy that everybody said was going to protect corporate law. Uh, if, you, if you'd said a month ago, how's Kavanaugh going to vote on protecting Apple? Oh. But, uh, you know, 99% of Americans would have said, here's a guy that's a Republican appointed to be a business. No. He sides with the foremost liberal justices to say, let's try this case because what Apple's up to might not be good. Mm
3: -hmm. That was really interesting. Yeah. 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 All right. Nick, trade wars are good and easy to win. Definitely. The United States and China traded blows on Monday in the latest escalation of their tariff war. Just days earlier, it looked as if both countries were on the verge of a comprehensive deal. Instead, both took steps to raise new trade barriers. In Beijing, uh, the Chinese government announced plans to impose tariffs on $60 billion worth of American products in retaliation for U.S. tariffs that President Trump increased on Friday. The president told reporters, I love the position we're in. Still, the, under the incorrect assumption that China is paying all the tariffs, Trump claimed that the federal government is collecting hundreds of billions of dollars in tariff <laughs> revenue from China and said that he planned to use $15 billion of which uh, to uh, bail out farmers, suffering loss of sales to China. Trump has been a prolific Twitter, tweeter, tweeter on the subject of tariffs of late. Recently, he tweeted, quote, tariffs will bring in far more wealth to our country than even a phenomenal deal of the traditional kind. Also, much easier and quicker to do. That's a lot of tweets. One
1: wonders about the non-traditional <laughs> yes. excellent deal. Yes. <laughs>
3: He later added, quote, tariffs will make our country much stronger, not weaker, just sit back and watch. Phil, why don't you start us off on this? What's your read of the growing tensions between the two world the world's two most powerful economic
4: countries? Um <laughs> I don't uh I don't know. I mean, I, this is, I, you know, I say to my students a lot of times that the older I get, the, the less things are black and white. Like it's just everything <laughs> sort of gray. And this is one of those where, uh, you know, China is not he, they, China does not play fair. Right. They, they do. They they're not um, they're not engaging in in true free trade. Right. They're not they're not playing by the rules of the game. Um, we shouldn't let them get away with that but this just feels like the the route that this is going down of of continuing to slap tariffs on each other i i think back to the last presidential election where it wasn't just trump it was you know it's still bernie sanders right is is more sort of anti-trade than others and and i um you know trade i trades Trade's good. Trade is good. <laughs> <laughs> I, the, 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 I just, it feels like a whole lot of people are making, de- I, I shouldn't, I feel a lot of people in the US are making decisions about trade who don't understand trade, who don't understand the complexities of the, you know, the, the costs and benefits and the unequal benefits and how, the long term implications. I feel like China does know what they're doing. Um, and and I, I don't know. I mean, just the, the, the idea of, Using the money made from tariffs to offset farmers, and I, I, I this is this is going to end badly, right? I, I, it's the stock market's taking hits. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe if I, I'll be interested to hear what you guys think. Whether this is you know Trump's madman approach to things, and is it going to actually improve his bargaining position in a way that is beneficial? Um, I, it might, but if it does, it's going to cost a lot of Americans a lot of money in the process.
2: Nicholas. This is the whole China thing. Real, It's I think about it a lot uh, in terms of the fragility and just kind of destabilized nature of the global economy and how how tenuous that kind of balance we have with it is. And realistically, you know, since the end of the Cold War, it's been extraordinarily beneficial for a lot of people. But at the same time, it's decimated Domestic industries to the point where they can't function without massive amounts of international support or, or you know, exporting to to foreign countries, um, and China is the worst offender out of all of them. Like you said, they're they're currency manipulators. They steal intellectual property. Um, you know, it it's 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 not the rules of the game. And to continue to play realistically by their rules, more than anything, because we need to keep the system in place as it exists, is not fair. I think as much as Trump's approach isn't the right approach or the most nuanced and strategic approach, it's something that needs to be done. And sacrifices are going to have to be made at some point. And I, in terms of the the global economy, it's there hasn't been a tremendous, a tremendous amount of sacrifice in terms of uh, industry restructuring and, you know, how we think about domestic independence in conjunction with global trade. I think this makes a, a really good argument for having greater domestic independence, but this is a weird transition period where we're going to have to reckon with this, this 800 pound gorilla that's in the room right now that no one has really paid attention to until there's a problem. I, it's, it's gonna be bad for a while. I think the end result will end up being better than where we're at right now, personally. So you're saying the farmers deserve it. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Wow. You reap what you sow, literally. Tom, trade is good? (laughs) Trade is excellent. (laughs) And the freer, the better, Mm -hmm. the
1: more. Uh, I'm struck by the fact that you institutionalists uh, probably are in uh, a, a conundrum here. Diplomacy doesn't work. We know this. Beyond that, neither does the WTO. China loses there, they lose big, and then they ignore it. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have just simply said to the international order, uh, I'm thinking of using a a Nickism here, F off. They just don't care. Wow, is that mine now? Yeah. Oh, man. And um, uh, this is a war. It's a war about money. It's a war about trade. It's a war about uh, economic dominance. It's a war about uh, protecting American interests. It's a war. There's just no bullets. Mm -hmm. There's dollars. And I've thought to myself the whole time I've listened to it, well, I'm, not, I'm with Nick, I'm not completely confident the president's approach is the best. I don't think any of his predecessors did better, and I think a lot of them did worse. Mm-hmm. China's at the table. I'm not 100% sure I love the Trump way of thinking, but Stephen Mnuchin is no dummy. Uh, Wilbur Ross is no dummy. Um, uh, there are smart people at the table pushing the Chinese very, very hard. And I'm having a hard time feeling bad about that. I feel really bad about the effect on agriculture, but it's important to say that there are other industries that have done very well because of tariffs mm-hmm. and, and a sort of temporary protectionism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I hope we win, mm-hmm. and, I, and I think we might.
3: I, don't, I think everybody's in agreement that China is, is not playing fair. So I, I don't think there's... It's not, it's not a... It
1: goes way beyond not playing fair. Mm-hmm.
3: I'm not so sure that's the case. I, I, I,
1: when you say to Microsoft, we understand... Phil just got saying the Chinese are, got mm-hmm. done saying the Chinese are smart. They know what it means to copyright something, and they know when they put Microsoft products on, among other things, government computers, and don't pay a licensing fee, they are stealing. It is like walking into a Sears and walking out with a microwave. It's as simple as that. This is not complicated and sophisticated, and it's a hundreds of billions of dollars loss.
3: I'm not disagreeing with any of that. Like, I think that's wrong. I will say, like the United States. So the, you look at the textile industry.
1: Wrong is a better word than not playing fair. Right. <laughs> I'm just getting ready for. I'm just getting ready for criminal culpability. No, no, I, here. I,
3: I think here's, so. Here's the question. I, I don't think. I don't think the United States always plays fair by the rules, sure. right? I mean, you can go all the way back in history. So it was. You know, Britain used to be a textile. A manufacturer that drove the world and and why did it come to the United States partly because of slavery but partly because we sent people in to steal and look at their patents right I mean, we walked in and we they couldn't even go in with papers but they looked at the at how they constructed their machines <coughs> brought it back to the United States and we did this right I mean so we, the United States we
1: stole intellectual property from you can't Green see Green. on the radio eye rolls no no this is true though right I mean we so <laughs> of course it's true but this that's is not this is an game. excuse for saying to the Chinese you can steal our intellectual no, property No, this is
3: the game. So I'm saying here, this is the game. This is how it's played. And so the question is, how do you want to play the game? And so you were attacking the WTO. I'm not saying that well, I'm not
1: attacking it. I'm saying China doesn't honor it.
3: Right. The United States also has not historically honored all of the WTO rulings. I think it's in our interest to try to reinforce this institution to say it's better to play by rules than it is for total anarchy. Agreed. Because in total anarchy, over time, China may become the more powerful economic country, in which case we don't have the same leverage that we have right now. So I, my, my thought on all of this is, that, yes, I agree that China is violating a whole host of rules, uh, currency manipulation, intellectual property right, stealing, you know, when companies come in, they steal technology. All of that is terrible. Let's find a way, instead of a bilateral solution, let's think about reinforcing these international institutions as a way of reining China in, China in I'm
2: worried about what com- what comes in the future. But how do you get an international institution like that to enforce that kind of policy when they haven't done that previously? You
3: get everybody to accept that this
2: is how you
3: play the game, right? You know, whether even if you're going to lose short term, it's in everybody's interest to abide by so these we're back, rules. we're back
1: to diplomacy. Yes.
3: Well, not diplomacy, but the idea that... So the United States creates the system after World War II to say everybody benefits... From global trade, playing by these rules. If you play by the rules, everybody's going to net net win. But, but,
1: but post World War II, there was no China doing this sort of right. thing. So, so, you have it, to
4: opt- so, is is the U.S. more likely to win this war with China alone, or with a lot of allies on their side who are pressing China as a whole? Well, that's a different question, but. I, it I, seems... don't think, I, I don't think it is. Right. I think that's what Bill is saying. Right. If we if the, the, the purpose of the WTO, even if China doesn't abide by the WTO, if we all uh, you know, if we as a sort of with a whole bunch of other people on our side agreeing that these are the rules and we're going to push China on it together. I mean, that I think that's my complaint about the what? Trump administration is that his approach, the Trump approach has not been China is bad. His approach has been trade is bad. And so while he's tried to fight China, he's also isolated America from the European Union and from all sorts of other trade partners who could be collectively pushing China on these things. I don't know if they would. I'm not an economist, but it feels to me like we
1: are uniquely situated to stand up to China. Denmark isn't going to stand up to China. Yeah. Uh, uh, Italy's not going to stand up to China. Now, maybe the whole EU. Uh, do I wish we had allies? I think I, I, I do. But these are these are all places that have suffered from the unwillingness to say to China, "You're the bully on the playground." and And somebody has to stand up to you. And no one behaves in modern economic life the way China does.
3: I don't disagree with anything you said, but if I'm putting on my China hat right now, if I'm Oops, China, racist. no, no, hats are okay. Um, <laughs> wow, I, I say to you,
2: <laughs> I say to
3: you, if I'm China right now, I say we're no dummies. We're not gonna, we're not gonna just fold on this. You know, we've got, you know, we've had tremendous sex success. We're powerful. I, I, I don't, I don't see why China would just suddenly shift course.
1: Well. That's, that's clearly what they said walking back from the agreement yeah. they apparently made this week. I, I, maybe I'm in over my head on economics here. But, but there's, a, there's a, a theme that runs through the approach this administration is taking, and it is uh, we can win if we last long enough. And I'm wondering if that's not true. We buy more from them than they from us, uh, thus the trade deficit, which feels like a red herring in this argument. Um, They need to sell to us. They hold our debt, and I keep hearing people talking about calling it in, but for goodness sakes, they drive down the very market that makes their debt meaningful Mm -hmm. if they do that. So maybe tariffs are a way to bring them to the table and say nothing else has worked. Mm -hmm. We need an agreement
3: it's it is a good test for democracy versus an authoritarian system right mm-hmm. uh, does i mean the us's election in 2 years mm-hmm. does is china sitting back saying like hey we think joe biden's going to get elected mm-hmm. and we're going to be in a better position where china can can absorb mm-hmm. Two years worth of crankiness because of their repressive. I I, I don't know. I mean, I, you and I agree on a lot of this. It's just there's about some how poor you province
1: know. in China that doesn't have electricity turned on today because they're paying for tariffs well, or something I, like
2: I, that, right? Regardless, I mean that's what it's going to be anyways with China because they don't give a shit about the 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 the, the well being of their entire population. On top, so they have the the Belt and Road program, uh, which is realistically creating infrastructure and support. For countries around China, Southeast Asia, Africa, mm-hmm. areas which are underdeveloped, which China is going in there to develop specific aspects, and then all of the profits from, from, from that, from the actual construction and the, the resources that come from that, go back to China. It's not going into global right. trade, it's going into China. You, again, you're not playing by the rules of the game. I understand that. You have the ability to do that. Why wouldn't you do that? but if you're going to be part of these institutions that benefit you that give you an upper hand in all of this that that can't be okay and clearly those international institutions are not doing their job to curtail that when you have a country that is realistically using all the levers of free trade and free markets and then bastardizing it and manipulating currencies and markets and Completely shutting down their markets if if uh, 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 an event you know puts it in a bad position. That's not how the system works. Bill's in <laughs> agony over here. No, no, no,
3: no. I'm not disagreeing <laughs> with any of that. The, the thought that occurred to me is I think you're absolutely right, Nick. And you know the, the biggest complaint about violating international trade rules before China was the United States. The biggest violator before that was Great Britain, right? I mean, you're the, right. The, the mo- we are powers- the ones that built the systems, right. though. So the, the hegemons <laughs> violate the rules, correct? So this is why. As the United States drifts in a position where it may no longer be the global hegemon, it should think about creating strong institutions that may constrain other actors. Or at least
1: to Phil's point earlier, find a way to use our power to produce an international consensus on what trade looks like. Yes, mm-hmm.
3: yes, yeah. that, that would be good. That would be really, really mm-hmm. helpful. Yep. Mm-hmm. All right, Nick, Game of Thrones. Oh, we've, we've God. Finally. All right. So turn... Yeah, hold, hold, well, yeah go Bye. ahead. Yeah, Time yeah. to talk yeah. Game of Thrones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're a regular listener, you know that over the last couple weeks we've been exploring what political science can teach us about Game (laughs) of Thrones. Now, if you haven't watched last week's episode, turn the podcast off now, like right now, because there are serious, serious spoilers ahead. All right, no. Uh, so we're going to dive into the subfield of political science known as just war theory. If you now, haven't
1: watched by now, you're not really a fan. <laughs> That's, That's right. true. So it's, it's, to worry about you. yes, yeah. yes.
3: Now a lot of disciplines do just war, but political science does it as well. Uh, just war is a tradition of studying the ethics of war, specifically the morality of war, morality of going to war, and how you should conduct yourself in war. Building off last week's episode, we're going to explore the use of human shields and what just war theory has to say about Cersei's use of human shields. Human shields are a situation when a leader deliberately puts civilians in combat zones in an effort to deter an enemy from attacking. Game of Thrones fans will know that Cersei did just that in an attempt to deter Danny from carrying out an attack on King's Landing. Phil, you and I—we've both taught courses on just war. Uh, what does just war scholars or what do they say about morality human shields? Are they OK? Totally cool. Just
4: this is good. I think they're fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We're done here. No, I mean, so I, I mean, at the core of of, of of modern just war, even not all that modern just war, just war theory at the core of the ethics of war arguments is the distinction between combatants and non combatants. So many of the rules of, of what is, you know, just or ethical in war. Revolves around that idea, which is that soldiers, combatants, are valid targets; non-combatants, civilians who are essentially drawn into war against their will, are not valid targets. So, I mean, I think the the idea here that, and then I'll let you guys talk about dragons. Um, that uh, it's very that, um typically with a with a human shield. The, I feel the, dismissed, <laughs> denigrated. The the um, the. the, the just the moral culpability would lie on the person who's using the human shields, right? So the person who is using human shields is the one who is putting the non-combatants at risk. Having said that, Just War Theory typically says that the attacker has an obligation to do whatever they can to minimize the damage to non-combatants. So to the extent that you could avoid killing human shields, you have an obligation to do that. Think about this in law enforcement, right? If you have a hostage situation, the police don't just blow up the building to get to the, the hostage taker. There, there is an obligation to do whatever you can to minimize the harm to the civilians in order to. Now, what if you're going to lose of, the
3: war, Phil? do it? What? what if what if what if doing so, what if caring about civilians means you might lose the the battle? Or more importantly, what, what if you did just blow
2: everything up and there was nobody? <laughs> Sequencing Nick, let's start with my question and we'll get to yours. Go on.
4: <laughs> well, there is a question of proportionality that comes into play as well, which is that if uh, you know, so, you know, Adolf Hitler is standing on a mountain and he's surrounded by three people and I drop a bomb and kill three people, but it ends World War II. There's a proportionality to that, right? If if dropping a bomb to kill, to like totally destroy Germany in order to kill Adolf Hitler, right? And I kill, you know, tens of millions of, of uh, innocent combatants, you would say that is a disproportionate um, uh, action. And so, yeah, I mean, and that that's... Uh, that's, that's There's nuance to that, right? There's shades of gray to that. So, um, But generally, um, yeah, the, the idea that you could end a war by doing some really terrible thing is not necessarily, you know, you don't get a big thumbs up for that, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. like, it's still a terrible thing even if even if it ends the war. They're not, they're, the, the, the morality is not intertwined,
3: right? Ooh, that's a good way of framing it. Nick, all right, so Cersei, she brings the people in. ...to deter Danny from
2: carrying out this attack. Is, is, is that okay to you? So, I, I mean, on the surface, I would say no. Obviously, that's not okay. Mm-hmm. She's a, a, a very manipulative, strategic, you know, a single-minded ruler who doesn't, realistically doesn't care about her people at all. But at the same time, especially over the last episode, in the end, that ended up being a better decision because of the results of what happened with the battle you have the entire city destroyed you have an invading army who's raping and pillaging as they come in for you know vengeance and and hatred of of the uh, the opposing army and the the enemies end up becoming the people who are trying to save the people of the city so mm-hmm. it was a it's as much as i think that this relates to just war doctrine this is a very this was a very different kind of scenario and something that you don't really see you don't see you know al-qaeda and isis bringing people in somewhere potentially being the 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 better of the two uh sides in a specific conflict this i, I don't know this was different yeah. to me tom Danny is crazy Phil, too. Phil
1: said earlier uh, a question we were talking about was obvious and easy and therefore wanted to move on I'm going to just say rape and pillage bad, human shields bad so let's move on to the libertarian <laughs> interpretation of Game uh, of Thrones the libertarians worry is that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely absolute power in this context being a dragon that can blow fly, uh, flames and ruin whole cities man, be so power better. corrupts yeah it has corrupted every. It's really an interesting theme in the entire show. Yes. Mm-hmm. Game of Thrones is the game of power. And it is all about the corrupting influence of power. So, so how
4: do you regulate that? So,
3: so hold up. Before you ask that everyone. question, Phil, we should just tell you the woman, uh, the, the leader who used the, the human shields, the response was to, to fly in on a dragon. And burn All up. Right. Well, hold on.
2: It's a little bit more nuanced. No, than no, no, that. no. She burned the whole town. Yes, she did do that. Uh, but prior a wagon, to that, any nuance to fill at this point is pearls before swine. No, do not, do not let him
1: engage so, on dragons. Realist- You're making a huge mistake here. <laughs> this is a Trumpian level mistake. Oh is drawing fill in on you? People were watching dragons over the weekend. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Stop it. Let's get back really to libertarians I and power. <laughs> the, I, I mean, it's. Uh, it was a really interesting scenario because as much as people think that and we talked about it last time, I think she'd be a terrible ruler because she's never done anything that has been positive in the sense of being level-headed on her own without someone curtailing her worst influences. Mm -hmm. The city surrendered and then she just decided to burn everyone in the city to death. It was was just, wait, I'm just, I'm, I'm
1: having a, a connection here. Uh, she has never done anything, at all, other than. Alexandria Ocasio Cortez <laughs> has never done anything except once win, but now everybody listens to her. Am I right?
3: Is she riding the dragon? And absolute no. power. The absolute
1: power will corrupt.
3: <laughs> so, so my sense is, Cersei is wrong for using human shields. You know, it, there's no question she's wrong for doing this because they were. Involuntary human shields, right? I mean they were fleeing fear so that But Danny is is worse because she after the other side surrender she continues to carry this out. Now here's the question I have. I don't want to defend Danny, <laughs> but her argument but. is that she wants to break the wheel of oppression. So she is saying, and I'm not saying I agree with this, but she her argument is that. The system is broken. The system is slavery, oppression, and whatever I can do to enable future generations to not suffer is a just argument.
2: By destroying an entire generation. So here's
3: the here's the question. So if you could to go back to Phil's Hitler analogy, if you if it required you to, to use a dragon to burn up an entire Hitler village as a way of liberating and bringing about no. a better end. Is that is that just? So no, 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 no I mean, it, the heart, like, <laughs> Phil doesn't want to be associated with
4: that <laughs> argument. <laughs> Another core point of just war theory is that use ad bellum and use in bello are separate, which is that mm-hmm. the justice of the war you're fighting does not have an impact on how you fight the war. So the, there is a long tradition of, in humanity of justifying that essentially we're on the side of good, so we can do whatever the hell we want in order yeah. to win. And that's that is not true. You can fight a. You are still. You know. You still have an obligation to fight justly, even if you are
2: on the right side. But what if you're on the losing side at that point?
4: <laughs> no one ever thinks they're on the the wrong side of a war. <laughs> no, not yeah, the wrong
2: side. The losing side. You.
4: Well, so, I, mean, I mean that's, that's Hiroshima then, and
2: Nagasaki, but she was right? on the winning side,
3: right? Right. So it makes her wrong. But even if you're on the losing side, unless you're being overtaken by Hitler, I think there are there the reality is that you have to adhere to certain
2: rules of war. Well, I think this is why people had an issue with how how this played out. Realistically, there's some indication that she could have gone this way, but it was very it was very abrupt, and it seemed. To come along in the past two episodes oh, or so, yeah. writing um, was not
3: great on that. No, yeah.
2: it was just bad writing. It, I, I just she's she's just she's not a good leader to begin with. Yeah. I, I just I, I, and, uh, and
3: and Nick, political science taught us that last episode.
1: <laughs> you know, I'm thinking. Uh, remember Dietrich Bonhoeffer mm-hmm. tried to kill Hitler, uh, and and there's a bit of this there. Now the proportionality argument that Phil's making is totally appropriate, and of course. It's Thomas Aquinas who made this argument originally. I just feel like I need to say that <laughs> with a moment of silence after Thomas Aquinas.
0: <laughs>
1: no, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Fewer people with power are fewer people to be corrupted. I, you know, there's been a Grays, lot of... ipsa, loquiter.
3: There's been a lot of conversation about what is the theme of the show. And people just... And I, I feel like that, to me, is the theme. Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And it, it, it's... it's even the best, even the breaker of chains, right? Uh, she became... And grown, it's a shame they're making
1: John into such a <clears throat> undesirable character because he's the first one in the show to say, I don't want the throne. Yeah. Now, my guess is next week he's going to be sitting on it, and that's going to be their way to yeah. you know, <sighs> sort of say power corrupts. But in the end... If they do that, it stinks. That's sure, it, I, I'm
2: going to be mad. Well, the whole season yeah. stinks. I'm very it's, upset about this season. Yeah. Yeah, I'm terrible. not. I'm really not not okay with it. Phil, how do you feel about this season?
4: <laughs> I, I am surprised at how, I don't think I've heard anyone yet. Uh, people who love this show, who, they all seem to hate this show at the same time. <laughs> this season, yeah, yes. Yeah. All like, they all hate the last season, but they're I like, can't wait to watch it again as well. So. All
1: right, I want bets, though. Uh, we're just, can we shift to one thing yeah, so that yes. the next time I get back, I can? Yeah. I want a ruling from each of you on either the census question, the cross, uh, census or cross? who wins? That is, does the court say you can put the cis, uh, citizenship question on the census or does it reject it? Or does it say the uh, peace cross can stand or fall? I'm going to say Because we're going to get all those cases soon. This is the best time of year.
3: So my my thought is they're going to go no on the census case. False. I would and, Yeah, I think And, that's and the yes one. on mm-hmm. the cross. Wait, no to the question? Yeah, no to the question, yes to the cross.
4: Yes to yeah. All so right. you can't you can't put the citizenship. Yeah, I, 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 I think, that's my guess as well. Yeah, I don't I don't know. Yeah.
2: Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, uh, I would say because of the temporality, they're going to go with the the census question and say that it can be on there. Um, I, uh, and the cross, I, I I don't know. I don't really give a shit about it, to be perfectly honest. But my reason <clears> for the <throat> for the census is
3: I think I, my guess is Roberts oh. goes the other way. It's five four the other way.
1: Cross-standing, yeah, and citing your beloved institution, the uh, UN, yeah, census question on.
3: <laughs> My favorite thing about is is Kavanaugh and um, Gorsuch citing like international law for the first time in their career. Suddenly they think think international law is valuable.
1: No, no, they're going to say the Department of Commerce has extensive powers to put on the census any question they like. Yeah. Ooh. Mm. Others will say. The beloved United Nations, <laughs> <laughs> that institution of great
2: trust and power. Oh, they like census questions. This will be fun to kick around. Oh, oh. God, couldn't resist. Ooh. Well, that was a long one. It was a really was good one, though. Oh, um, Tom, I had no idea that you were a Game of Thrones person either. Oh. I probably should have talked to you about that before mm-hmm. we started this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well anyways if you guys like the podcast um we're gonna do we have to do one more Game of Thrones thing uh, after the the finale Phil wouldn't he demands it obviously yeah yeah, Yeah. dragons and such um if you guys like the podcast questions uh comments beer suggestions guest suggestions anything like that um contact us on uh, Twitter or follow us on Twitter uh Barstool Paul P-O-L Facebook at Barstool Politics uh beers on Untapped on iOS or Android just look for Barstool Politics um the podcast, Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, uh, most major platforms, and then Predictit. Uh, we are partnered with uh, Predictit, which is a real money political prediction market where you can buy and sell shares in future political events. Um, Barso Politics listeners, if you open up a new account, uh, you'll receive up to a twenty dollars match on your first deposit. Uh, so open up a twenty dollars account and it will match that twenty dollars, giving you forty dollars to use on there, which is awesome. Uh, it's super fun. Do they have Game of Thrones markets on there? They should have Game of Thrones markets on there. It's politics. Why yes. don't they do that? Who's going to win the throne? Who's going to win the throne, damn it? It's way well, more important p- than any of this other shit. <laughs>
4: the problem with gambling on something in which some people have written the outcome already. <laughs>
2: Nobody's <laughs> written the outcome? What are you
0: talking about? <laughs> you lose a lot of money.
2: <laughs> shut, shut Phil on. wants regulation. <laughs> 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 um, just use the promo link predicted.org slash promo slash barstoolpaul20 uh, and check that out. Um, Tom, thanks as always for joining oh, thanks, us. Thanks, Tom. It was best, fun.
1: Best thing ever.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Anything else, guys? No. All right. We will see you next week. Cheers.
4: Cheers.
0: Subtle.